This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Good evening. What are we talking about tonight, Puka? Tonight is a deep dive into the second volume of the Immortal Eyes Chronicle, Shadows on the Hill. Mm -hmm. A uh, timeless book, I would like to say, because uh, my copy, at least, has no copyright (laughs) date. Same. Yes. It it is copyrighted. We can we can verify that. But yes. yeah. By White Wolf, but yes. And it's uh the authors listed are Bill Bridges, Jennifer Lindberg, and Angel C. McCoy. In terms of the date, I assume this is I believe it's early nineteen ninety six, and we do have an ad in the very back for Vampire the Dark Ages coming in spring nineteen ninety six. So yes. around that time. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, so I want to give a disclaimer for this. This book is mostly set in Hawaii and deals heavily with the indigenous fae of Hawaii, the Menahune. Mm. I pronounced that right. And I just want to give a disclaimer that I know even less about that culture than I do about indigenous North American culture. So I don't know about you, Puka, but so I will do my best. But uh, there's a lot of, I had no idea what this is coming from reading this book, so... Yeah, I mean, my my familiarity is also in passing. Yeah, so I'm just saying, any comments that like I'm doing my best based on what I know about things. But Likewise, it, it, and it's mostly like general about how cultures are written about more than this culture in particular for me. I know more about the history of Polynesian migration than specifics about Hawaiian culture. Same, yeah, you know, so. Yeah, and like I've known some non-indigenous people in Hawaii, but even then, not a lot. And I've never been there myself, so yeah. even those bits of culture. I'm... Same on all counts. Yeah. So I guess we should uh, get started with the first chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very similar to the previous Immortalized book. Um, just giving a little overview about what this book is about and uh, what a chronicle book is, with I think some copy and paste there. It does say that this can explicitly be used as a setting book, and I would have to agree with it. We can talk about what we think about the setting later, but I found this... There's one chapter where it's story, and even that's full of setting. So even if you decide you don't want to run these specific... The specific story in the scenes chapter, and you did like the setting info, I don't think you'd be wasting your money on that part in that sense. But... uh... Which you could say about the toy box as well. It's perfectly yeah. adequate as just a setting book for San Francisco. Yeah. But this one is like even more, it seemed a little bit. Perhaps. Yeah. And so, yeah, unless you had something else to say on the introduction, I guess we can move on to setting. Not really. Just that it's overall structured in the same way as the toy boxes where we have book one and book two. Book one consists of general information, history, and geography. Book two gives you a wide variety of characters in addition to story scenes that you can use. Do you want to start with this, what you think about the setting yeah. chapter? Yeah. So with the setting chapter, 
the things that I, I would say I appreciate the most are their attention to tourism, since they point out repeatedly mm-hmm. Hawaii at this point is very, the economy is very uh, driven by tourism. And similar to how we had discussed before, the balance of glamour and banality in that process in how tourism affects different groups of fae in a place and different types of tourists, how they have different approaches to this landscape. Mm-hmm. That is addressed here, particularly in terms of how it can provide glamour for the Kithane, but then banality for the Minuhune because it's pushing their traditions to the side, you know, yeah. in favor of packaging and commercializing the natural landscape and stuff. They also say things like Hawaii is a place of contrasts, of violent quaking earth and quiet lush solitude, of intensely congested streets and uninhabited rainforests, and kind of talking about those tensions. I wish they had done more of that, but I'm glad they at least highlighted it because I think a lot of people have the image of the islands as just this lush paradise without any of the kind of social problems or economic issues that are present there and are often founded on race and ethnicity. So, yeah. Actually, listening to another podcast a few weeks ago by someone who was visiting his in-laws in Hawaii. He visits them sometimes because his wife's originally from there. And like they, he is not in a touristy area and he's like, it's completely different. Yeah. He doesn't like it, but like it's not the same. There, there's the tourist places and then the rest of the state, I guess. Yeah. And those are, or those are very different places, which sort of hinted at here too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, just like, I guess if I ever did a Changeling Las Vegas book, which would be interesting. But, <laughs> yeah, it's any- one of those places where the touristic aspects are so heavily foregrounded that the actual lived reality of a lot of the people who are there, which deserves attention, is glossed over in a big way. Yeah, yeah. His main complaint was just how many spiders and how big they are. But uh, oh no, the worst. Yeah, spiders and centipedes uh, or millipedes. No centipedes. Yeah. But anyway, but yeah. So th- this this setting chapter, like all, actually the three setting chapters including the setting chapter a bit less i found than the first one i think are not just things you could get i mean there's still a lot of you could get it from wikipedia these days there was more specific useful stuff for game that you wouldn't be able to get from wikipedia i found more talking specifically about changelings and things like that well we do get the note that they are considered part of the kingdom of pacifica which i believe has been dropped out of c20 Mm -hmm. and even here, it's kind of like, well, why would they care about? <laughs> well, it's also, it's also, they they actually express, I at least in the first Ed Core book, but it seems because it, like maybe the kingdoms aren't completely static either across. That's true. Yeah. They also, yeah, one one interesting thing that gets introduced here, and they touch a bit a little bit, and I'm really not sure what to think about it, mostly because I don't have enough information. Is there were, it talks about before the Polynesian people arrived in Hawaii. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't know what that's referencing to. I'm going to so. have thoughts about that when we get to the history chapter. Okay. We get summaries briefly of the climate and the islands themselves. So just briefly from northwest to southeast, even though we go in the reverse direction in the geography chapter, I'm going to try to pronounce these correctly. We have Nihau, Kawaii, Oahu, Molokai, Lanai, Maui, and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And most of these, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the geology of the Hawaiian Islands, they are volcanic in origin. And there's a hot spot under the oceanic plate and the 
Pacific plate has been moving from, I guess, moving northwest over the hotspot. So the mm -hmm. islands in the southeast are newer than the ones in the northwest. So the big island, Hawaii, is the freshest where the active volcanoes still are. And the rest are dormant volcanoes that have eroded into smaller and smaller shapes. Yeah. And, so. and in case we fall into the terrible banality of being a geologist, according to this book. The yeah, there was that. It does also have a <laughs> sea serpent on it. So. Yes. Excellent. We get summaries about the demographics and economics. Again, Wikipedia could probably give you a great deal of information. Certainly more up-to-date information. Yeah. It's overall a pretty straightforward and simple chapter that just kind of gives you some basic info. They say it's an exciting place for changeling because the constant flow of people allows them continuous access to glamour from all walks of life and all attitudes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it does talk about that being handy for ravaging. Yeah. And there is banality too. I mean, between tourism and overdevelopment and, you know, well, there's and like scientists <laughs> and actual plantations. And... Yeah. Run by big pineapple. Mm hmm. On the one hand, the notion of scientists coming to study the volcanoes, looking at them as geological constructs rather than magical sites, I understand that mentality to an extent because there are, even mm -hmm. ongoing, there are currently struggles about things like building observatories on, um, I think it's on Mauna Loa, yeah. you know, which is a sacred mountain. And so there's been a lot of resistance to that. On the other hand, it doesn't give any depth to people who might be scientifically interested in these well, things and still feel awe and wonder. Well, it also gives a lot of geographic, inf geological information from those banal. Yeah. A and also, like, it's not like they say all the Cathane, like the Western Cathane, uh, the islands are banal either, even though they're not all being super reverent either. So it's, it's anyway. Yeah. It certainly comes across to me as a book that was written by a committee. And we do have mm -hmm. three authors, and it's unclear how much they might have consulted with each other, but they definitely, yeah. different sections seems to have different sort of threads they're drawing or on. Or sometimes even the same section. There's, mm. there's some stuff we'll get into later on that, too. But that's basically it for chapter one, I'd say. Mm -hmm. So chapter two is Hawaiian history. Yes. And a lot of this chapter was actually copied wholesale into C20. So mm -hmm. the information in that book on the Menehune I believe is in, in several sections drawn word for word for entire paragraphs. And yeah, it gets a lot into things like the concept of, well, it looks or it gets into the history. Um, that's what I was talking about. Those first dreamers thing where it says is, I mean, it does present it as a legend that the Menahune have. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> well, before getting into that, I do want to say yeah. that the opening to this chapter, I think is actually really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It says things like, the earth was born of fire and pressure. Hot fluid rock burst from the earth from millions of volcanoes spreading forth and cooling into a rugged and rounded mantle. And it's just this like big idea geology opening that's really kind of cool. It reminds me of um, if you ever played the original Civilization computer game from the early 90s and there was that opening animation that was like, in the beginning, the earth was out without form kind of like adapting Genesis. And it reminded me of that. So it's like, whoa, you know, so I liked that, that bit. But yeah, so with the first dreamers thing, I did a little bit of reading about this and I'm not an expert in the mythology, so I can't speak to this with any authority, but 
it seems to me like the idea of pre-Polynesian Hawaiians was a myth that you know existed in the early days and kind of got I think in this book because the Minuhune are individuals that the characters might meet or that players might want to play they can't be cast as the pre-Polynesian Hawaiians that they originally are in the myths and oh. then the source that's quoted here, Martha Beckwith, I have no idea if they had other sources for the mythology that they were looking at or if it was just her. But when I was kind of looking at this background information, it seems as though she kind of talks about this legend that there was another group of people even before the Menuhuna, the Mu'aimaya. And it's not really clear where she got that from or how well supported mm. that is in other sources. Okay. So it's it's unclear to me. What I find really frustrating is how they linked that to the concept of the continent of Mu, which is the Pacific version of Atlantis and is mm. equally fraught with problematic stuff. So yeah, they really leaned hard into that and I'm not happy about it. Yep. And other things like they talk about Pele, who's one of the most important figures in the Pantheon and kind of introduce her with a Hunter S. Thompson quote. And I'm like, I don't know that that was the best choice yeah um, they talk about kamapua'a the pig god of the islands and discuss a myth about him and it's like they go out of their way to avoid talking about any kind of genitalia or mm -hmm. <laughs> any kind of sexual act which is strange because well it's uh, really strange given some later chapters like the unsealed yeah. chapter and i suppose there's this idea like oh well this is this is changeling so we can't let it get quite as lurid as other World mm -hmm. of Darkness books. And I want to say, of course you can. I mean, yeah. Well, again, there's also the Unsealy chapter, I'll just say. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's inconsistency, like you were talking about yeah. with different authors. Perhaps. Anyway, it's a sidebar that I'm not wild about. Yeah. But then we get into the history since the arrival of the Polynesians. Mm hmm. And it mentions the Kapu, which I'm a little bit confused if it's related to taboo or anyway it is no no yes. it's it's a cognate word so. oh it is a cognate word oh okay that makes sense though. the actual systems differ from culture to culture but the root concept the word is yep. is cognate or it can even differ within culture but that's a actually that does get brought up later too but okay so that was just them using that was when replacing the word actually isn't completely necessarily inappropriate okay i i will say you know as as a white teen in the suburbs reading this book for the first time in ninth grade or whatever it was, this did give me a lot of information about the culture that I had never heard before. And at the time, I may have taken more of it for granted than I should have because I was an impressionable youth, but I still appreciate that they did give you as much as they did. Mm -hmm. So it is something that I wanted to learn more about and go back later and clarify how much of it was true you know the descriptions of mana and the descriptions of luau's and all of that yeah so yeah we have a little bit of information about the arrival of the polynesians who sailed their boats across the pacific thousands and thousands of miles and it's still kind of flabbergasting to think about people doing that so yep and then a different kind of flabbergasting sailors of captain cook yes we have notes about that yeah, him and his crew being, or crews or whatever, as being a force of banality across the world. Yep. I, I, mean, I think that makes, I think that tracks. 
I don't yeah. know about Hawaii, enough about Hawaii specifically, but I know enough about other islands he went to. That yeah, and so it describes it describes Captain Cook's arrival, and it's the sort of it's the kind of narrative that we've seen elsewhere in the world where white man explorer arrives, takes advantage of local legend to set himself up as a god, mm-hmm. and I I don't feel guilty in saying he got what he deserved, which was yes. He tried to sail away, and his ship had a problem, so he had to sail back. And mm-hmm. the folks on the island said, "Well, but if you're a god, why do you have? Why do you need our help to repair your boat? Just you know." So when when it became clear that he was not a god, some trouble ensued. He ended up getting killed on the beach. And frankly, given the number of venereal diseases he introduced and the sort of just taking advantage of people, really, and taking advantage of people, <laughs> I yeah. don't really feel any sympathy. So. Yeah. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't, just like with the Nunehi personally, and again, I I wouldn't want us to trump anyone from the culture. I want to hear what they're saying. And if, by the way, if you're listening to this and you live in Hawaii, especially if you're of the indigenous people of Hawaii, please get in touch with us if you'd like to discuss this further. But, and, but, but yeah, the, the way that they get affected, the effect of banality and it causing an equivalent to the shattering I find to be not necessarily a problem. The way that manifests in terms of getting cut off from the dreaming when it doesn't do that to the campaign and all this other, that I don't like. But And that goes back to the question of whether the shattering slamming shut the gates to Arcadia, if that propagated out through the world, even if it was slowly, did it happen all at once or did are, are certain gates meant to shut down our trods to the dreaming meant to close only when banality first arrives. And I don't know that we get a clear answer on that, whether it was a global uh, event from the start. I haven't come across anything suggesting it so far. Maybe there's a f- future book suggesting that it was a global event. Yeah. That seems to be the case here though, because when, when they talk about banality arriving on the islands, they mention how the Selkies had kind of given the warning saying, Hey, by the way, the gates to the dreaming are, are closing, have closed. And the Manhune said, but we, we haven't noticed we're, we're living our lives here. There's plenty of glamour. Mm-hmm. Everyone's happy. And that they didn't even realize that they were closed until later when banality did hit, they tried oh. to go and found it. Oh, I thought when banality hit it, that's what closed it. It's unclear. It's, you yeah, know, okay, the Selkies said they had yeah. closed, but whether they yeah. actually had is unclear. You're right. Gates to the Dreaming had, I mean, they should have known. Like, why would they? That was how many centuries? Unclear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least at least three or four. You know. Well, I mean, if we're talking about they needed to do this after Captain Cook arrived, and the shattering was the Black Death. Right. So four and a half centuries between those two, and the Selkies arrived somewhere in between. Yeah. See, okay. There. Now I'm reading it again. Yeah. Or why need to return to Arcadia? So they're like from Arcadia. Yeah. There's some interesting inconsistencies just within this book too. Yeah. I had misread that as the gates will close, but no, it's saying the gates had. Yeah. But the Yeah. That's strange. Speaking of inconsistencies, one of the ones that I found most irritating in this chapter is the continuous misspelling of Kamehameha, who's perhaps the most well-known to non-indigenous Hawaiians, the most well-known figure from the history. And they just keep yep. misspelling it slightly. <laughs> it keeps going back and forth. Like differently misspelling? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, I mean, it says King Kamehameha in the header, 
and then Kamahamaha, which is a different name. So, mm. but it goes mm. back and forth. So it's just poor copy editing, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, we get through the whole cook arise. King Kamehameha takes over, like ends up becoming the sort of king of the whole island chain. Unites them through, yep. I suppose, battle and conquest, but then peace. Yeah. And then, and it even suggests there's, it introduces nuance to that and talks about, yeah, the knocker Jack Doggin arrives and teaches the changeling way. Yeah. And then gets possibly killed or sacrificed. Well, human sacrifice, at least. Not necessarily. Well, they said maybe he was. Yeah. Well, it says he was never seen again. So who knows? Yeah. And they also, it's similar, like they had dealt with the spirits, but didn't have that whole totem set up till after that too. Yeah, that's, that's true. So we get information that they formed a pact with the spirits of the Umbra, Mm -hmm. which I don't know that we had something that specific for the Nunahi, maybe in the player's guide. There was a something, I have to go back to the episode or the book. Well, in the in the uh, the previous what we've already done on the Nunahi, in the Werewolf crossover book, right? It had something similar where they weren't really tied to spirits until after their shattering too. Yeah, but it's here. It's presented as like a singular pact that was made mm. at a specific point in time. Yeah, I did find it interesting. So, with the arrival of Benality, it does say from the first iron nail traded to a Hawaiian on Kauai, the Menehune felt the wave of a coming storm. So that notion of a physical iron nail being the first mm-hmm. pierce of banality is a sort of poetic. Yeah. In Changeling, I think that does work as a thing, potentially. Yeah. But... And other things too, though, like there's a reference to how the Kapu system was proven false through the actions of two of the widows of Kamehameha. And that when when they violated the Kapu and showed that they were false, that kind of shattered the social compact of the people society was in disarray life was bereft of meaning mm-hmm. and into that void that's what enabled the christian missionaries to kind of step in and do their banal thing and it just seemed very pat like just very i, I fully believe that whoever wrote that section did read it in a book yeah i would believe that <laughs> just it's like in three sentences, we go from here's this incredibly complex social structure tied up with religion that's been handed down mm-hmm. and kept intact for centuries. And this one violation, everything comes crashing down. It just seems a bit too facile to me. But, oh, yeah. 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 I can't remember. I think I've read something about this before, but yeah. Oh, and then, and then it talks about the plantation, American plantation takeover. Yeah. And essentially the annexation through corporate interests of the yep. entire kingdom. Which this presents is like almost like that's a conspiracy theory. And I'm like, uh, I thought that was just like, yeah, that's what happened. But again, maybe which book you read. But yeah. Anyway, that's the other part of the one two punch of banality. Mm-hmm. At least we don't have um, a bunch of she with freeholds who were there from beforehand. Small miracles. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fairly straightforward overview of the pillaging of the land, the coup of the plantation owners, the annexation by the U.S., and the touristification, mm-hmm. touristification, whatever the word will be, of the beaches and the yeah. rainforests. M- mention of World War II and stuff, but... Yeah, very brief mention. Yeah, they talk a little bit about it later, mostly with the wraiths they bring in, but... Yeah. Talk about how Menahune music can basically 
system wise it sounds like you know Seder revelry but lowers banality yeah and talks about the rokia well if you're gonna have rokia anywhere in a crossover sense yeah and i remember the rokia breed book or whatever also does talk about hawaii fair amount so yeah there's a bit about the manufactured paradise of the modern state and since this has been since this is 25 years in the past i i do wonder how much has changed but i suspect not that much i suspect Mm -hmm. it is still the same mix of natural beauty poverty in many places and overdevelopment and over tourism in others yeah and then some fights to help make things better have succeeded and some have failed and which they get into here as well yeah like full throughout the books this book yeah, and there's like six or seven Uktena Garu on the islands. Yeah, like, just for some reason. You know. Like that's a lot there's a lot of words put to them. <laughs> Especially since they drop a black fury in later. <laughs> right. Well that's the thing. We have we have these these prodigals mentioned and we don't have any representatives from these three groups in particular as yeah. NPCs later on. So. Yeah. Like if you're just gonna say, and there's some others, and then here's some others, that's one thing, but like Oh yeah. yeah, they don't even mention Wraiths here. <laughs> or Rokia, yeah. Or Kitsune, or Octena. Yeah, there's no there's no stats for any of them. There are also references to how there were already Kithane living on the islands when the Shi returned in the Resurgence, which makes sense because, yep. you know. And when the Shi arrived to kind of stake their claim that the locals, the Sealy locals at least, you know, before the she arrived, they were like, oh, you know, that's thousands of miles away. They're not here. We don't care. And then as soon as they did arrive, the Sealy at least said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll swear fealty. Like, out Oh, of yeah, nowhere. I have. Well, let's wait till we get to the Sealy on Sealy chapters to get too much into this. But I have mm-hmm. thoughts about the two courts of Kithane, how it's represented in this book. And it's a, it's strange. It doesn't make, it doesn't really fit even with any of the other Changeling books I've read before or since, so. Let's get through chapter three, geography first. Yes. As that is next. Overall, though, the history chapter, informative at points, moves very quickly at others, too quickly, I would say. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Oh, it does mention that the Unseelie exist really without any kind of structure. And then we get a story talk. We get some chapters talking about their structure later. But yeah, there there are reasons for that that have to do with the immortal eyes story. But Mm -hmm. that's a separate discussion. Which we'll also get to. I do feel like this was written by somebody who at least lived several years in Hawaii. Like the geography part. Yeah, mm, perhaps this level of detail, like, or they knew someone who like it was just the kind of little like, oh, I went here and I saw things, and it's like it seems more than you would just get on like a vacation or two. Mm. But I have no idea yeah. how accurate it is, but just the level of stuff, it's like it reminds me of you know what? Well, it makes me think of like what I would write about in a place I live. Mm-hmm. As opposed, or have lived rather than like a place I visited once. Especially the descriptions of Hilo, which is the largest city on the Big Island, because mm-hmm. you get, you know, sort of things about, oh, there are lots of orchid nurseries, and oh, here's a craft shop that sells hats, and yep, here's and the rainforest. Like, oh, these too. trees you can get glamour from, and like, yeah, I mean, it just feels like the writer has seen them and really like those trees as well. <laughs> We also get some information about the freehold of Irtalian, the Unseelie Lord. So as a bit of context, at this point in the story, in the tie-in novels, essentially what happens, spoiler, 
at the end of the toy box, the first novel, is Glynis, who's this unseely sorceress with ties to the shadow court, brings oh. back Ertalion, who's trapped in this dreaming prison. Oh. He had been exiled from Arcadia because he had tried to start a rebellion, and she gives him a supermodel body and brings him back in San Francisco. They escape to Hilo, where he sets himself up as the new unseely lord, kind of pushing out some of the unseely who had already been there. And oh. so that's that's the context into which the characters, if you run the stories in this book, are arriving. I I haven't read those novels, so that I was trying to just piece it together from the toy box and then this, and it mm-hmm. it felt weird. Yeah. I think also, and we'll get to this when we talk about the appendix too, there is a chronology of the novel in this book that is way more detailed than we get in the toy box. Like we get a chronology in that, but it's just like, on this day, the companions go here. On this day, Mm -hmm. the companions find this. In this book, it's like, so-and-so has a conversation where they grapple with the inner turmoil of their soul. Then they go eat some food. And it's really like a chapter by chapter, even section by section within chapter breakdown. So you get a lot more detail to work with. So if we had had that in the first book, a lot of the pre-existing political structure issues probably would have been clearer. Mm -hmm. So I have a question. What do you think about in this chapter? It has various locations giving bonus dice to a given art. Yeah, it does. (laughs) That's a interesting mechanic. I'm actually, I'm totally fine with it. I like things mm-hmm. like that. So as long as it's justifiable and the storyteller is okay with it, why not? I'm just thinking if I do, if I do end up doing a write-up of my own city, maybe I should. Yeah. That's an idea. So then we get some information about Volcanoes National Park, where one can walk up to the crater of Kilauea, mm-hmm. which is the, the center of Pele's home. Yep. Some lava hag chimera. Which is interesting genesis where those came from. And the whole Oathbreaker. Not Oathbreaker. Yeah. No. He hunts down Tabu Breakers. Or yes. Kapu Breakers. Kapu Aqua. Yeah, I felt like I need, if you, if you can get to like the safe zone, you're okay. They also mention in here about there are Menahune with like regular mortal jobs and stuff. Which yeah. doesn't seem like it should be a big deal, but. Yeah, it's a little perplexing. There's. It's the same kind of tension, honestly, that you see with write-ups of the Nunahi, where some of the time they seem to want to portray them as these isolated indigenous fae living in secluded corners of nature and only kind of popping out briefly because they're so worried about banality, or people who are embedded in the cultures they came from have connections, have dreamers, and Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe they do kind of live apart to maintain their communion with nature, but are otherwise changelings in yeah. any other sense of the word again it's not my cultures but like personally i think the second one makes more sense to me because it's they're changelings they have to deal with banality sure but like yeah and it makes more sense for this game for a role-playing game it makes more mm-hmm. sense yeah. and that the relationship of the role-playing game to the specific beliefs of each culture that's something that can be hashed out yeah. case by case but you know, it does make it easier to integrate those mythological figures as fae in Changeling by having them be more or less similar to everyth- everyone else. Having yeah. that human side and that fae side and balancing the two in 
whatever way is most appropriate for them. And like, and personally, if I'm running a game and there's somebody from one of those cultures and especially, you know, people travel the world and we're online gaming now and all that stuff mm-hmm. on top of that, like I'd want them to go, oh, that's cool. Hey, I like that. Sure. Yeah. I'd like to play one of these, right? Not here. Let's do some major reworld building or you have to play Cathane or cause it's or whatever. Yeah. Right. Well, and you don't want someone to come and say, I'd like to play one of these. And the response of the storyteller being, okay, you can never interact with mortal society except yeah. for your very limited, you know, your yeah. personal connections from your own yeah. family or something. So yeah, you want to give players the option to explore like everybody else. So, mm-hmm. but I suppose it's the kind of thing that players and storytellers have to balance and discuss individually. Mm-hmm. This got a little bit far away from geography. <laughs> yeah. So sidebar sidebar closed for now, but it is an important mm-hmm. discussion to have. So yep. uh, after the big island, we have Maui and yeah, just kind of bits one after the other about different locations. I liked the notion of Haleakala National Park, which is the world's largest dormant volcano with a rainforest growing up around it, home to many native species with most growing extinct as the years pass. But mm. Sounds cool. Yep. We get some wraiths splattered through here. I've just. Yeah. Somebody. Which are really the wraiths that are mentioned in this section, because again, like the toy box, there are these little sort of tinted sidebars that are specifically the chimerical or supernatural geography mixed in with the physical. And so you get these little local legends and stories and figures who are associated with individual places. Mm -hmm. And some of these are really good. Some of these are really good story hooks. I'd rather have these than some of the NPCs that we get instead in the later chapters. Yes. Or maybe they could take these stories and then make them NPCs in the later chapters. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I think about Kawa. Kawa? No. Oh, oh, sorry. The Kawa. I sorry. Yeah. 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 The guy, the the, the guy really hates dolphins. He hates dolphins because they scare away the sharks, which are his totem. And mm-hmm. like the Nunihi, the Menehune need to, I guess he can't really enter his totem's material. He has to be in the presence of a shark to yep. enter the Umbra. Mm-hmm. So he yells at the dolphins. Yep. And he's been kicked out by the larger Menehune society. I also like, there are, throughout this chapter, there are little mentions of ecological issues, which is important in a general environmentalist sense. But in particular, mm-hmm. when talking about Polynesian islands, this is something actually we also see in the mage supplement Dead Magic 2, which touches on uh, Polynesian culture. The, many of the islands, my understanding is, historically had population issues in terms of having limited resources and kind of trying to control family size, things like that. And in more than one instance, if I'm remembering the history correctly, uh, underwent ecological collapse. So Easter Island, uh, Rapa Nui is the most famous example. Mm-hmm. But attending to those, by continually highlighting the fragility of the ecosystem, it reminds me of that piece that it's not just about, oh, the environmentalist impulse to preserve and maintain species and everything. It's also this historically embedded consciousness of things like food web and food supply. Yep. You know? Well, yeah, and it's also highlighting it's not like the modern 
Western environmentalist conception is also about just doing it for its own sake. Right, right, right. People might think it that way, but that's, uh, we're all living here together. uh, Yeah. But on on Hawaii in particular, because it is so isolated and has been for so long, it's, I imagine, something that's much more maybe subtly enfolded into the culture, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And you could definitely, like, when you have islands like that, making one island collapse is not hard. Right. So then we get, after Lanai, we get Kaho'olawe, which is an uninhabited island used as a sacred site to pray to fishing gods, and also to set off for Tahiti. And then the Navy took charge of it and used it for ordnance tests, mm-hmm. so the ground is now full of unused mines and bombs. Great. Great job, Navy. And then we get Molokai. Mm-hmm. I think I actually knew about the former leper colony there before reading this book, because it's something that you learn about in Catholic school. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, there's a little mention of the, also the, it's one of the Minahune kiths, but they're talking about it here. And it's like, I almost feel like I like their kith frailty better for boggins than the boggin kith frailty. Hmm. <laughs> but that's just a little side thing. <laughs> yeah. Because it also fits those Western, like the, where the knocker myths come from too, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then we get to Oahu, the most populated of the islands, where Honolulu is located. Mm-hmm. And Waikiki, sort of ground zero of tourism, which is, of course, where the Sealy Governor's Freehold is located. Well, yeah. A Sealy She Governor, of course. Yeah. He's definitely got big, uh, not even like villain or antagonist, just what a dick. Apathetic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. It's like, I'd want either better or worse, I think. It's like... <laughs> but overall, the island is presented as being like simultaneously the longtime population center, a tourist trap, and a surfing paradise. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the saddest and most infuriating sentence in the book is, the sacred altar of Lono was located in front of what is now the Sheraton Waikiki Hotel. Mm-hmm. Like, if that doesn't say everything about the appropriation of the lands and the culture and the disruption of the traditions for the sake of tourism. I don't know what will. Mm-hmm. It's one yeah. of those things where the theme is repeatedly highlighted here, but it is frustrating how not much commentary from the authors is made on it. Yeah. And then there's a changeling hotel where there's a boggin who wants all his guests to feel the escapism of the islands. We have sites in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. including the Hawaiian Chinatown, the university, the Punchbowl Crater, and Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. whose description is mercifully short. Yep. I'm glad that it wasn't like a whole page on Pearl Harbor. I think you could do a book or something about it for Changeling or some game, but it wouldn't have fit in this book. And I mean, having <laughs> having grown up in the US, I've heard enough about Pearl Harbor in my life, probably. Mm-hmm. I've only really heard about the aerial battle, but uh, yeah, I never studied it in school. So yeah, it's just one of those things. It's just so if you have any time travel thing when you're in a flying ship, you'll be in Pearl Harbor <laughs> at some point. My favorite location in this section probably is actually the Kahokuelo Heio, which is the ancient temple for the Kahunas to gaze at the stars and named after a comet where you get an extra success on all uses of soothsay during spectacular celestial activity, such as meteor showers. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And then we move on to Kauai. Yeah. So and this is the one Menahune village on this island. Yeah. 
which also why i feel like there should be more of them but i would assume there are Mm -hmm. there's other sections that makes it seem like there aren't but yeah well or at the very least there are other locations where individuals live if nothing else oh yeah it'd be like how many actual full-on kithane towns are there probably not a lot what makes it different is because they don't have freeholds which we should get to later on there's not the same oh you know you can find a place to hang out wherever you go it's no there's the one place yeah they don't have freeholds they have what would make the chi make a little bit more sense as a or a little bit more useful yeah and we do have references in that sidebar about the village which is called moe ohane at the foot of Mount Waialeale, the most, the rainiest mountain or the rainiest location in the world. But we do have reference to how the Menehune occasionally bring a human to the village to participate in ceremonies, someone who is an indigenous Hawaiian, and mm-hmm. usually a musician or crafter so that they can be enchanted and they, they find new inspiration to create art and provide glamour for the Menehune at their next show or after their next creation. So this seems like a pretty clear example of you know musing dreamers getting glamour from humans and again as with the nunahi we have kind of conflicting mentions of how oh they're cut off from the dreaming it can only get glamour from nature but then something like this it gets better in a different chapter they talk get in more detail about the village and they talk about uh how they have some local trods yeah how do those work when you can't access the dreaming (laughs) i suppose they could be umbral trods but yeah Anyway, we get a bunch of other locations mentioned here. Mm-hmm. I do like the mountain range that was once a living giant, which sounds like a proto-gloam. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Nihau, the last of the islands, which is privately owned by a ranch. And there's hardly any electricity, no telephones, no guns. The residents are primarily indigenous Hawaiians who are ranch hands. It's really... I feel gross reading about it. I don't I don't know what life is like there. If people are content there, cool. Yeah. There's also apparently Menahune living there. Yeah. But it just seems kind of like weird to me that this is like a privately owned ranch that is also an island and the people that live there living their traditional ways mm-hmm. of life are ranch hands. There's something that yeah. makes me feel uncomfortable. So. Uh, yeah, I don't blame you. I just looked it up. It's 2010 census population is 170. Okay. Still owned by the Robinson family. I guess it's better than being owned by Big Pineapple. Mm Mm-hmm. Or Big Fruit. But yeah, they're not... It's like English is not the dominant language on that island. It's Hawaiian. And the chapter closes with what I think of as actually a very lovely section on the flora and fauna. You get a lot of information about different species and even their even their status in terms of endangerment, as well as a chimerical pig that if you slay it and eat its flesh, you can make prophecies, which I think mm-hmm. is great. This this also made me think, if you, for some reason, were running a game set in, set in Hawaii, and someone's playing a puka. Lots of options. They, they could play some of these kinds of animals, right? Why not? <laughs> okay. And that's it for the setting chapters for book one. Yes. So overall, I mean, as we said, it is actually shorter than the San Francisco setting chapters. I mean, it's only about 40 pages total, those three that we just went through. And yet I feel like there's more information 
in there page for page. Yeah. Like even the, you could look it up on Wikipedia. I don't know if I could find it listed as handily. Yeah. Online. Yeah. So yeah. it'd be one of those. I'd probably, if I was running a game there, I'd uh, probably still start from this book and then look up more details as needed. Yeah. Shall we yeah. get into the characters then in yes. chapter four? The Sealy Court. So I found the Sealy to overall be pretty boring. <laughs> I I had some active dislike of how it was written. Like Yeah, they just seemed first very First of all a bunch of Fiona bland party people. Yeah. But like boring party people and Nelly, like the way they wrote Nuella, I don't know. Is she she's is she from the novels or is she just? So actually, I think the only Sealy character who even makes an appearance in the novel is Kiraven, the Slua, uh, yeah. at the very end. Because who... I found Nuella to be kind of offensive as a character. Yeah, it's not it's not great. She is a former call girl slash I don't know. Yeah, and like even Count Menhiron again, he's like just. It's like, okay, you can make a she like that, sure. But, uh, like, he's all afraid of change. Like, that's literally what the Fiona, like, their boon is that they're not afraid. And they're supposed to be wanting adventure, not... Anyway. Yeah, he's just overall kind of lazy and likes living in the lap of luxury. Any other Sealy house would work. Yeah. I don't think we get any House Liam in this book. Yeah, you could make him Liam. You could make him Gwydion. You could make him like. There are options. Yes, you could do all the. It's just I just found Fiona to be the worst option, and it's like, oh, they're just kind of boring satyrs. Therefore, we should. Yeah. Because he throws a lot of parties. I do like that Noella has a chimeric dagger with a tiny scorpion inside. That's oh yeah. Cool. We have Sammy, the monkey puka. Monkey puka. I like him. Maybe he's a bit too one-dimensional, but... Yeah. And then, I like George a lot. I have questions about George, like... Yeah, he seems to have the... He seems to have the one ring on his ankle. <laughs> so... Also, how did a seagull go through the chrysalis? Like... Yeah, it, it sounds like he was a seagull. <laughs> you know, he was born a seagull and then realized he was a changeling or something, which raises all kinds of questions. Well, no, he's a seagull. It's his last name, right? That's what it says. Well, that's that's the joke he tells. So. Yes. But it says, George actually did grow up among the seagull population of San Diego. Yeah. Okay. Was that yeah. after his chrysalis, or was he just a seagull? Yeah. And you have Nahome and Chog, which I'm like, uh, I guess. I actually like the idea of Nahome as... Because I like the idea of a bartender mm -hmm. character in general. Yep. And, you know, a former issue sitting down and being a bartender, that's pretty cool. And her unfortunately named bouncer, Chog. Yeah. And then Karavan. Okay, so she's the one from the book. She was sort of the most fleshed out character, so that makes sense. Yeah, she has some some rough stuff in her backstory. So I'm also confused by her under image. She's got three different forms that she can look like. Which I just no idea what they're talking about. It's like, okay, there's the mortal side to other Kithane and then under glamour. I'm like, what? <laughs> I guess it could be that, like, when she calls on the weird. I don't know. Oh, yeah, they didn't have that yet. I guess the second form is more about what she's wearing and her yeah. wall and Faye mean. 
and then mm. the last bit is about her actual appearance. Yeah, there's a few things like that in here. Actually, in a lot of these, especially one ebooks, where I'm like, "What? What are you talking about? Like, what? It just felt like was this from a different game? Or, I don't know." There's also lots of connections to San Diego. Like a lot of these characters yeah. say, they they originally hailed from San Diego. So maybe, well, as you said, when it was somebody had spent some time in Hawaii who had written that geography section. Maybe they were from San Diego and had flown out there for an extended trip, and yeah. that informed the writing of the so, book. So, yeah, George did not show up in any of the books, any of the novels. No, none of them except Kiravan, as far as but I recall. Kiravan came. Okay, yeah. And Kiravan was just like a flash in the pan. She like shows up in one scene, yeah. I think. And then she travels here because she overheard the seagull talking. Yeah. Um, okay. By contrast, the Unseelie are all in the novels. So. Yeah. Well, not all of them. I think yeah. uh, the last okay. two are not. But... So I had a bunch of questions I wrote down, then now you tell me it was in the novel. It makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Well, so so we get Ertalion, the Forsworn Prince of House Elul. Difficult to say. He is perhaps the first character we see with appearance 7. So he's just the mm-hmm. full-on pretty she. But he also has Glamour 10, which is a rare thing, because he has freshly arrived from the Dreaming. So he is mm-hmm. he is sort of the quintessential cold manipulator who believes in ruling over mortals and snacking on all their glamour whenever he feels like it and wants to build a new unseelie court in Hilo with people that support this idea. Yeah. And then we had the Glynis write-up where yeah. I really didn't like her either in this description and then later they talk about her and I liked her better as a character. At that point. She is much more interesting in the books. Yeah. Well, this <laughs> description right here, she's terrible later on it's like because she's seeming like completely loyal for no good reason to Tertullian, and i'm like why she um so in the toy box she actually shows up in the toy box as well she's the one that sends the enchanted harp to aeon mm-hmm. spoiler you know and she's kind of set up as a power behind the throne type she has her own machinations that she wants to put together they also have a little chapter about her like little paragraph here talking about how she avoids showing her fairy form to not make the prince there jealous. And I'm like, how does that work? She only has appearance six. Why would he care? What is she like hiding in her banality all the time around him or something? No, no, no. She just, you know, doesn't wear makeup or whatever. Okay. She's still very she-like. She just doesn't. Okay. That's what showing her fairy form means. Not some metaphysical thing. She doesn't, she doesn't let it all hang out as she often do quite nearly so often. Yeah. And then you have Lord Devlin. Devlin the milksop. Yeah who was pretending to be Zeely and then got in trouble with Kai King David over it. But is also a Fiona. So more on Zeely Fiona. Yep. And then we have the ugly hot Argo twins, Argo and Mahler twins. Yeah. With appearance four, but then described as ugly trolls. Oh, they're also described as hot earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get into Lady Siva and then Gamin. I'm like, Someone, and I can't even guess about the gender of the person or the writer or whatever, but somebody was a bit too horny writing this section, I think. But Yeah. So just, yep. <laughs> like talking about the other thing, it's like, okay, this is kind of going... A pair of satyr ladies in a kinky relationship. Yep. Yep. And it's like really emphasizing it and getting into lots of physical details. I think it's supposed to be Lady Shiva as well, which makes it kind of almost worse. Yeah. Like you were talking before with the like not wanting to mention genitals. I'm like, well, I don't think that's the same author as this part. Well, they don't. They don't mention 
genitals. I don't no. think they mention genitals. It's just yes, it's very. <laughs> they mention everything else. In detail. Yeah. And then Bonaparte Gonzalez was he in the book? So Lady Shiva, I think, shows up briefly. Gamine Larouche, her lover, I don't recall at all from the books, and Bon Gonzalez is definitely not in the books. Yeah, because I don't really get what he's. It's another like. Why was this NPC dropped in here? I assume to kind of add contrast, because with with the setup that you have here, it's kind of like the Ancili of Hilo. If you're playing with the Immortal Eyes story, you have Italian and Glennis as kind of the main central figures. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing that, you have Devlin and Shiva and Gamin, and I yeah. guess Argo and Mahler, the troll twins. And then Bone Gonzalez is like a third option of the commoner Unseelie who wants to kind of truly... But why don't they just make him a redcap who grew up in Hawaii? Because everyone needs to have a connection to Southern California, I guess. Okay. Los Angeles this time instead of San Diego, but still. Yeah. I wonder if there's an idea that Hawaii doesn't have the same kind of urban things that are part of the tropes of cities in the U.S. Because it is rather small and removed... Maybe the authors expected that the readers wouldn't buy like an actual homegrown gang leader. Wait, do we get any Kithane born in Hawaii? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, because there's definitely people in Hawaii that yeah. aren't <laughs> like that could be Kithane. Yeah, no, there, there. Are... In fact, they talk about all these Kithane who grew up in Hawaii. They just don't mention their names or give them. No, among the NPCs. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the Ancili Court of Hilo, or the Ancili yep. Society of Hilo. And then we get the Galleon and Prodigal, beginning with the Minehune. Yes. Who, again, are characters in the books. So Yes. And start with just saying mana is their word for glamour. Which I, I like the way that mana in changeling terms is sort of explored here, because it's simultaneously glamour, but then also sort of the symbolic spirituality of the land and the people and the connection between them. And I like that. I like that representation. It's very different from Mage, for example, where, you know, it's essentially the same as Quintessence with varying levels of cultural sensitivity worked into it. But yeah, and certainly a lot deeper than Magic the Gathering, for example. Mm-hmm. And then they have uh, stats for how your ability would have like little star system. Yeah. So, like, Which, you have etiquette four for the chief when he's operating in his own culture's yep. environment, but then presumably it would be zero outside of that. Yeah. Which, for the NPC stat blocks, I mean, that's a thing that I've had come up in role-playing games occasionally where you're just like, well, this is very specific cultural yeah. ability or skill or whatever. And or situational. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, etiquette is definitely one where that's very, that's always cultural right like you can't there's no universal etiquette i think there's a few standards that we can agree on <laughs> yeah generally general standards but yeah but, no it's it's true and i do wonder you have things like specialties or the the rule from mage where it's mm-hmm. you can have a specialty even at levels lower than four okay law even more so what's that, that? one definitely law would be a better example even than etiquette then yeah so traditional law versus academic or not academic or law for which culture right like right. even a lawyer from france in england might have trouble you know again i think there there are certain traditions yeah. of law that shares things in common but yeah anyway it's an interesting idea i don't know that this is the best way to make it, it work. it didn't say they, they're not allowed to drive car oh no it does it does say that 
<laughs> oh, they say they can't drive cars. Oh, shit. in the in the character creation section. Uh, it is okay. In there. So, oh, never mind. Okay, I was hoping this was a bit better. Um, no. Yeah. So then you start with uh, Chief Makani, mm-hmm. who's another boring as High King David. He has a very small role in the novel. So yeah, he's like he's a leader who's well respected and has some family problems. He's a bit like the the chief that we get in Freeholds and Hidden Glens, where he's sort of just yes this generic chief figure and mm-hmm. not very three-dimensional. There is the note about him losing his wife and how that affected him, which gives him a little bit of depth. But mm-hmm. well, Like I said, it's like High King David level character depth. <laughs> yeah. Then we have his daughters, Kanani and Lulani. Kanani is the elder diplomatic and dutiful one mm-hmm. who's the heir. And Lulani is the more extroverted and sorceress one who's kind of like an ambassador. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of like them. Yeah, version. I like Lulani a lot in the novels. She's yeah. cool. And then Hamaya, who's the chief lore master. And mm-hmm. holy cats, his uh, arts and realms. <laughs> You're just like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh look, Primal 5, Soothsay 5, Sovereign 5, Wayfair 5, Actor 5, Fey 5. Yeah, and this was in first edition. They didn't have nearly yeah. as many. So that's a higher percentage of the total everything. Yeah. Wait, they He's... all have Sovereign. Well, they're all they're all yeah. nobles. So yes, oh yeah, the the noble kith. We do get two commoners. So we have mm-hmm. Kenu and Poki, who are a warrior and crafter, respectively. They are not in the novels, as far as I remember. Mm-hmm. But they actually they do have some depth to them, and I feel like they could be interesting characters to include on with, with story hooks of their own. So so what do you? I'm trying to figure. Um, there's a section for Kenu. It talks about him slipping into the dreaming. Mm-hmm. What do you think that was meant by that? Was that just like a dream? The dreaming or what? Presumably. Okay. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I had a bit of trouble following some of this just because I hadn't, maybe I should have, if I was using this game, I'd definitely be going back and forth because there's so much, I was just reading it sort of in order and there's so much terminology that's later in the book, but that's just sort of the structure. So maybe if you are going through this and you were using it, maybe go to the Minahune chapter first and then yeah. come back to these characters. Yeah, probably sensible. Oh yeah, Pokey's description also... Yeah, Pokey had the opening of the Trods. Yeah. And then we got the Selkies. Yes, who despite having their kith right up in the toy box, don't appear in the first novel, only in the second. And this is where they're all listed as NPCs. Mm-hmm. And I do, as I've said before, have a deep affection for the Selkies. Yeah, it seemed like they were making this book so you didn't 100% have to have Toy Box to use it. They kept yeah. referring to stuff. Yeah. I mean, you have like information about how Selkie skins work and such. Mm-hmm. So you have Undine, who's the leader of the Selkies of Rocky Shore, which is just north of San Francisco. And she's... I like her as the generic leader character because, again, in the novels... She's also like an expert storyteller, a healer, and someone who goes up and down the coast rescuing her her kin, mm-hmm. which I think is a cool assortment of qualities for someone to have. We have her lover, Thessalyn, and Drifter, who's a nine-year-old kid who wants to be a surfer and hangs out with them. There's Muet, the Selkie who fled an abusive marriage to come be the babysitter, and her brother Morse, who wants to be a computer programmer. Or is a computer programmer, I suppose. And then Simon, who's kind of like this 
wandering former alcoholic southern country music singing guy okay so simon's not muet's ex no 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 okay i, think. I think simon likes her but yeah and some dantane were these were in the book i assume yes so we had Ryder in the toy box and he's kind of the central former she knight so i guess we do have a liam she in here because he is former liam mm-hmm. uh so he's the evil Dantane haunting the characters. And then we have three of his associates who all show up in the novel, mm-hmm. a former issue, a former troll and a mortal, which I'm confused by me too. Uh, the fact that he's called a Dantane. Also how they got him involved by this banality got nine guy that you enchant. And then he remembered any of it. Well, so again, in the books, I keep saying yeah. in the books as a preface to this. So he's, he doesn't, he's unable to see, Fay anything he got enchanted once by Ryder, and that was how Ryder convinced him like i'm possessed you have to help me and he's like it's okay i'll help you purge yourself of the sin and also hunt down and kill people who also have oh, this sin. maybe his banality was low then perhaps or Ryder just did a really good job enchanting who knows yeah maybe there's some dantane doom that would be an interesting dantane doom you strip away the mists of someone you enchant yeah but it's just weird calling him a Dantane because he he also does get enchanted, I think, a couple times in the novel when he's like, all right, I guess show me your horrible demonic magic again so I know what we're up against kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it is weird to include him as a Dantane, even though he's mortal. Like there's nothing fey mm-hmm. about him. And he got Law 5. It also, he, he is also from Puerto Rico and we get... A description that is less than flattering of that island, mm. which I'm not wild about. But the, overall, they're a good, I suppose they're an okay pack of antagonists. Mm-hmm. So we have only one vampire. That we know about. Yeah. Well, there's only one vampire described here. Yes. Who's a gangrel indigenous Hawaiian. And then we have a black fury werewolf for some reason. Yep. They are fighting they are fighting big pineapple. Yes. I want to bring up we also have some mages. And going with some themes I've been noticing in other changeling books. So we have Swan Chang, who's he's an Akashic. He has an Arate of five, and his highest sphere is three. And we have Geraldine Kravitz, who's a dream speaker, with a, an Arate of eight. Yeah. Spirit five. I'm actually really annoyed by her as a character because as much as I like mages having grounding in the real world and being, if not street level, at least keeping in touch with their humanity to agree, I do think it's a little ridiculous that an Arate 8 mage needs to, quote, supplement her income by telling the fortunes of the few special clients who can put up with her abrasive manners. It's like... yeah. Why is let's this... go through okay she doesn't have matter so she can't literally create gold but still like still she has life she doesn't need to eat probably also she yeah she's a essentially an oracle who's what got a bookstore or something no a bar no no, no. she she visits nahome's bar oh. she just lives in a bungalow and i guess tells fortunes to people so it just seems a little bit strange for that to be also like one of the most powerful mages in the world so she's also got no time or entropy like of the things she could do 
to stuff to to make income with magic fortune telling is actually something she's pretty bad at yeah well maybe she just does unawakened regular old uh, tarot reading. well she'd be really okay she does have mind three and area to eight so she'd be very good at cold reading yes plus she could talk to spirits and command them and create an umbral realm um all useful things as well as shapeshift yep and then we get a pair of wraiths that hang out together, neither of whom I'm particularly interested in. Yeah, I kind of skimmed them too. It's like, is that just, oh, a little girl wraith. I've never seen that before. Yeah. Her protector, who used to be a soldier. Okay. And then a general who is one month, only months away from retirement, who died in Pearl Harbor. Okay, sure. So it's a lot of characters. And some of them are quite engaging. Some of them could be useful in mm-hmm. Chronicle, and others just no idea. Yep. And then we get to chapter seven, scenes. Yes. So there's uh, three stories here Echoes of Legend, Welcome to the Jungle, and Reflections on the Mirror. Yes. Um, Similar to the toy box setup. I kind of liked, actually, I actually liked Echoes of Legend. It's a treasure hunt. I mean, the, 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 yeah, it's a treasure hunt. It's very open-ended. It has a lot of advice for what to do if your player characters do something like you didn't expect or didn't the author didn't expect. It's got a lot of detail, actually. Yeah, we have a whole... And has that nymph. Yes, the nymph is what I'm most excited about. But Well, so before getting yeah. to the nymph, we have an entire tale that you can essentially recite that's several paragraphs long about the legendary chief Kaiao and the nymph Kalyandrana, who fell in love and had wedding rings made by Pele given to them. And then mm-hmm. Pele got angry. They had to run. They lost the rings. And for whatever reason, the players decide they're going to recover them. Mm-hmm. But meeting the nymph. Yeah. So I feel like we could put together at this point, all of the data about nymphs as, as a kid. Yeah. So New storyteller vault supplement. I mean, potentially. So he's given a court. So Kukui is the nymph. And he's kind of like a super inanimate because he can take various forms. He can, he can become translucent in the water and be very fluid. He'll be bark like with green hair if he emerges from his tree. So it seems like he's also kind of like Gilly do vibes a little bit, a little bit by, but again, not because he's very tied to an area. Not, I guess you could say that's kind of like your, your, that's like an anime too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I would say that's more like an anime than Gilladu. I keep on thinking of the different anime that actually can take their um, anchors with them, but not all of them. He also has these special abilities within his grotto of merging with natural elements, healing minor wounds, mm-hmm. command the area to do things like having water swirl around or tree branches to wrestle, etc. So he has this sort of generic control of the land and the elements. Mm-hmm. And it's also where he came from. It's unclear. He was small. He doesn't really remember. He sought refuge in the grotto, grotto and then it seemed familiar, and then he things just sort of happened. But like, like he doesn't seem to actually be a changeling. No, I don't think he is, which makes it interesting that he's given a court and legacies and a seeming and all of the other things for a changeling to have. So yeah, but he does have banality too. So there must be some sort of. I mean, maybe this is still where the she aren't the she or the other kind of changeling maybe he's something like that i don't know i mean i don't think we have enough information to know for sure yep in any case long story short he helps them find the rings so Mm -hmm. and they have to fight a dragon for some reason 
also there's an autumn person geologist shows up yeah as as we mentioned before it's you know just kind of frustrating and like we're really not given any information on her besides by the way she's an autumn person and a geologist that's the two that's too important it's like other books hate psychologists this one hates geologists which you know again fine but give me some kind of counterexample, <laughs> or at least it's... or depth anything yeah it's like what did she do besides just geology she's just so aggressive about geology yeah i feel like actually this book was i know it's written by three people but it gives me this vibes like if you had somebody who went to go do their like ph some sort of geology based phd and then had a terrible professor and dropped out and then wrote a changeling book that's how it could happen. And there's Kotlil the dragon? Kotlil. Who's described as the bear's a semblance of a traditional oriental dragon. I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> I don't know enough about Hawaiian folklore. Is that part of Hawaiian folklore? No, but I mean, there there are long-standing Chinese and Japanese populations there, so perhaps that's the reason behind. Yeah. And then... You uh, at the end, you do things, and then everyone has very hetero- heteronormative dancing. Of course, because uh, this book suggests you're het unless you're unseely. Well, it was the '90s. Uh... Yeah, but <laughs> still. Uh, anyway, given the themes of Changeling and some of the authors, not necessarily of this book, but I'm willing to go along with the the notion that perhaps the traditional dances tend to be mm-hmm. heteronormatively oh, yeah, sorted. Sure. So. Yeah, it's more the unseely stuff that then makes you go. The dangerous lesbians of the unseely court. Yep. The dangerous kinky lesbians, even. <gasps> yeah. Those sensual Fiona. And it's like, okay, the unseely here are the ones that enchant people, I think. that was. Yeah, it. but just to hook up with them and get glamour. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, in these both these two... St- yeah, actually, no, it's the second story. We'll talk about that. Um, it starts out with... This one I didn't... It's a very linear story. That's like, oh, a f- chimerical fish is attacking and everybody sees it and you go chase the fish. But but it's a trap. The fish has friends. Yes. I'm like, why are you chasing the fish? They have a gremlin that... There was some interesting chimera here. With the, the fish yeah. and the pug, which is a weird bipede. It's like... I kept picturing Ditto the Pokemon. Oh, for, I was picturing um, Gumby. Oh, that works too. Yep. And then there's gremlins, which are nothing like the later Thaline, but they're they're yeah. they're more like xenomorphs. Yeah, cannibals too, or not cannibals? Yeah. Consumer. Yeah. yeah, xenomorphs that will eat cathane. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of skimmed at this point. I do like the line about the gremlin. For example, if gremlin consumes Mary, a childling issue, he will have the choice of healing three wounds or adding three health levels to his total pool. So, why why did Mary? <laughs> what did Mary do? <laughs> Why Mary? Why did he need to name the example there? Uh, anyway, I was childling issue named Mary, the relevant one. Um, so then, then we get uh, evidence of the unseely court essentially going around ravaging dreamers, artist ravaging dreamer artisans, mm-hmm. uh, and they meet Michael Cole, the troll, again from California. Yep. There's multiple times they tell you what dice to roll, and if you fi- if a, any all the player characters fail to roll, then I guess the game's over. The way it's or it doesn't really say what to do about it if they fail, only if they succeed. 
Mm. We just move the plot forward. I guess just have them keep rolling. Yep. And then, yeah, just talk about like, oh, like ravaging as this super obvious, like complete tainting of the person and destroying them. Well, there's, I don't know about destroying them, but certainly it talks about how the the artisan who gets ravaged will have several days or however long a period of time Mm -hmm. when they can't create. Yeah. They're not being rhapsodized. They're just. Okay. It's okay. Still not sustainable, probably. Mm-hmm. With all these unseely running around. Yeah, you're supposed to target the tourists. Right? Yeah, so you get Michael Cole, the grump troll, who's grumpy. And Wyvern, the red cap. The seely red cap. Yes. Well, there have to be a couple. But overall, I think the linearity of the story doesn't bother me as much as the relative insignificance. Because essentially, oh, yeah. the point of the story is find out that there's these new Uncelian town shaking things up, which is Ertalion mm-hmm. and Glynis and their entourage. And then the, the ending of the story, the sort of springboard into something in the future is, do they have enough information to tell Queen Aeron? Are they going to inform Duke Aeon? How will the Count's Court react? What do the characters do? And I just feel like, unless you're running a game which is very heavily predicated on courtly intrigue being the centerpiece of all of the plots, this is the kind of thing that you could do in like a scene or two and just wrap up. Yeah. It's just the scene or two introduction to the third story. Yeah. Is what it is. Except it's a lot more than a scene or two. <laughs> yeah. This could take sessions. And... Yeah. Cause you get chased by but, fish first. I mean, you could just do the chased by fish and then turn that in. Like, you could be done at that point. Right. They chase you all the way to the new unseelie freehold and then your job's done. Yeah. Yeah. Then we get the third one, Reflections on the Mirror, which is all about the deceitful and underhanded ways of the Shadow Court, which you have just uncovered. Mm-hmm. So here Shadow Court appears to just be unseely? Or I guess he is a Leal, so Yeah. Well he he sets his court as the Court of Shadows. Mm-hmm. So not the Shadow Court, just the Shadowy Court, yeah. I suppose. So it starts out, yeah, it's like it's like the introduction scene is there's a twenty four seven party. With lots of booze and lots of horny people. Carnal activities. Yeah, but then it's like, okay, what's so bad about... And it's enchanted mortals serve the kid Thane in any manner they desire. I'm like, okay. Doesn't present it like that's really a, that part's really a problem? Maybe? I don't know. There's a whole scene in the novels in this sort of... Yeah. In the court. Mm-hmm. I think it's just... it's the It's the sort of hedonistic free-for-all that you'd expect from no-holds-barred, yeah. sexy unseely with high appearance. But they just presented earlier that, like, the un- the enchanted mortals have no choice, really, in-, in engaging in this. So, not just they're enchanted mortals who want a party. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that Ertelian is actually a stand-up guy. He's, he's mm-hmm. cold and ruthless and doesn't care for humans, so... Yeah. Yeah, he's an awful person. Yeah, but it's dropping that in for the player characters, and there's no... Anyway, you're going to want to put some thought into this if you are following this in your game now. Oh, of course. I assume, because the the option is there for the characters to be unseely themselves, having recently arrived, and Mm -hmm. having that in there presents, like, the choice of, oh, oh, you know, this is something that Mm -hmm. isn't cool. So having them question their own loyalty to the cause i guess on the basis of hey this forsworn prince is mm-hmm. doing some gross stuff yep 
I don't know. I just wish they said it was gross or something. But anyway, yeah, we get into the plot of the story where there you meet uh, Callie. I assume she was in the book too? I think she briefly appears. I remember he has like a mortal that he mm-hmm. dallies with. Yeah. And the whole plot is you meet her a bunch. Well, and then you have to steal a book. Yeah, because this is where you learn that like she's actually working for Glynis, kind of. Yeah. And yeah, Glynis is not actually this is where the part as, as opposed to the write-up of Glynis where she's not actually just doing whatever the prince wants and trying to make him happy she's uh doing some things for her own trying to get these immortal eyes which we still don't have that much information about mm-hmm. and it's like a whole like treasure hunt not treasure hunt, but like taking you through and finding a book that then t- gives you more info on it more about how italian likes to torture people yep yeah, the Immortal Eyes of Sandgrain. About uh, investigation reveals a mythological book about some tiger eye gems that are reputed reputed to have magical healing abilities tied in with immortality. And then you have the choice on: Do you go to Prince Italian, or do you give the book to Glissane? In which case, Prince Italian will find out quick. Yeah, because I guess she's actually working for Prince Italian, or maybe she didn't really know what was going on. I'm also disturbed by that hot tub picture. <laughs> the more I look at it, I'm not sure what I'm seeing, and I don't know if I want to know. We do actually get some information about the eye stones. I, I didn't mm-hmm. realize until flipping to this page just now, but the, the journal pages, I guess, hidden in the book that you steal. Mm-hmm. So we do finally get some definitions of the eye stones and what they can do, but they still remain nebulous. So this is a mortal. This is all written by a mortal, right? Oh, no. Dear me, no, no, it's not. Really no, no, it's meant to be Italian, I believe. Because yeah. it's like his journal pages hidden in the book, mm-hmm. I think. Which is, I believe, also a plot thread in the novels. But I'd have to reread them. He has also made contact with the Dante and is kind of using Ryder. Because Ryder has one of the eye stones embedded in his palm. And he's sort of using him to, I believe, locate the others. Yep. One of which the Oathmates have. And that's it. That's the third story before we get mm-hmm. to the appendix about the Minihune. Yes. And this started off with, I didn't like this page, the first page of the Minihune. Mm. It, it said some things that I didn't like. They're related to the Nine, to the Nunehi, and a lo- the, which are a large group of fae closely tied to indigenous cultures of hunter-gatherer humans. Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot, lot of... I don't like about that sentence. <laughs> um, there's a lot of poorly chosen words there. Yes. They've refused to change with the rest of the world, bravely resisting modernity and, and its banality. And I'm like, okay, are you saying like basically they're kind of Nunehi, which would include anywhere that's quote unquote hunter gatherer cultures? Which they are not really. So <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, that too, if near the Nunehi, um, at least not. Anyway, uh, if, you're, if your definition of hunter gatherer is these people don't have suburbs, then. Yes, technically you're correct, but your definition needs some work. Yes. And yeah, the the Menahune are found in Easter Island, Tahiti, and especially on Hawaii. They have close cousins on New Zealand and New Guinea. The Easter Island part is perplexing to me because it was definitely abandoned at some point. So I don't know why yeah. Menahune would have lingered there. Well, maybe they didn't need the changeling way because there's no people there for a while. I, I don't know. I don't know. New Guinea would be a whole other with the culture up there because it would not just be Menahune as the indigenous peoples. Yeah. But well, it does say close cousins, 
So yes, but no, but I mean, if New Guinea would be interesting, just because there's so many different groups you would call oh, indigenous yes. there. Yeah. And then we have this bit again about being cut off from the dreaming and not gaining glamour from it, and must instead gain glamour from nature in the spirit world, which is directly undercut by other parts of this very same book. So yes, yeah, I'm just I I kind of ignore this opening and just go straight to the character creation. Yeah, I thought we should mention it though for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so these ones, uh, unlike what we got earlier from the Nunehi, they only have two camps, the Feast and the War, which are just Seely and Unseely, basically. But it also describes how they gain glamour. We have some legacies and the seemings. And an interesting note that instead of being divided into kith, the Minahune follow social divisions. So we have the Ali'i and the Kahuna are the nobles, and the Hana and Kokua are commoners. Mm-hmm. I like the notion of the Ali'i. Essentially, the way they work is because the Minuhune don't have bale fires, the Ali'i can hold lots and lots of extra temporary glamour, up to quadruple their normal glamour rating. Mm-hmm. So they're invested with it during uh, the annual Manahiki feast. What I'm wondering is, so essentially all of the Minuhune present spend temporary glamour that get invested into the chief, and then they can use that glamour as their own for things like cantrips if they're within 50 feet of him. The problem is that if it's only done during the annual feast, that means they have only that pool, not only that pool, they can still get glamour from nature, whatever, but that pool that the chief holds is only available for, yeah, it's, it has to be, it has to be, it has to last for a whole year. And that's a long time. Well, it's not just the chief, is it? It's all the, because there's other ones like there's multiple ones of them at least in the village i suppose that's true but it's still yeah you know that's a long time to make not that much glamour last yep and they also get two frailties for some reason right yeah the the, the she frailty which is i mean pretty bad also they're changelings why do they have the she frailty yeah and then sacrosanct which okay so like if i was tweaking this i'd just get rid of the banalities curse for them makes sense but I do like yeah. the notion that violating various oh, kapu yeah. related to them will kind of corrupt the glamour they hold. Yep. And then the yeah. kahunas are the lore keepers and spirit talkers and sorcerers, I suppose. Yeah, I think these are my favorite out of the... Yeah. Some of the birth rates and frailties are kind of ill-defined here. Yeah. So it just says, they can speak with spirits. And sometimes that distracts them and they try to get omens. It's like getting mm-hmm. omens doesn't seem like a frailty to me, but okay. Yeah. Well, the, besides the elite having um, sheet birthright of on beauty, like, does it make sense to you that they all just look like people chimerically? I don't know the. You know, I said you you said you read a little bit more about it. I'm like, well, so the Menehune in the traditional mythology, I if I am getting it correct, are supposed to kind of be. I think short and ruddy skinned and kind of like furry haired. Yeah. So I suppose their options were to either go that route or kind of have them more reflect the indigenous people, which I think is the better mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. You don't want them all the same appearance for one thing. They, they appear as, as indigenous Hawaiians, except the yeah. Ali'i are prettier. And I guess the Hana are yeah. more simply dressed. Mm-hmm. Portly and short, it says. The Kokua are yeah. physically fit, or perfect physical specimens. But like, if you, but if you, but it's like there's no difference if you're enchanted or not. Seeing them is really what I'm. Well, I guess they just get that added veneer of 
bling. Yep. <laughs> Glamorous bling. Yeah. I don't know. I like I like my fairies to I don't know. It it depends on the culture. Like if the culture had them all look like people, sure, but you know, you get you get all sorts of weird looking kithane and other kiths from other places. But Yeah. Well, I don't mind it. Yeah. We have the uh Hana, which for some reason only get one birthright. As do the Kokua, the warriors. Yeah. The honor of the crafters, the cocoa, the warriors. One birthright and one frailty each. Yeah. I do, like I said, I do like the Hana frailty for, I'm like, I think that makes more sense for Boggins to me. <laughs> but, well, no, this is actually different what it said in the other place. If, this, if for some reason the Hana cannot finish his task in the time he declares at the start of the task, you leave it uncompleted and never return to it. Any other Hana who attempt to finish it risks suffering banality. Okay, that's less cool than the other one saying if they're viewed, spied upon, then they have to abandon it. But I guess they would have to abandon it because of their craftwork ability. I think that was specifically when they were doing something for a mortal as well. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and the Kokua, uh, they get plus one dexterity. And that's it. And they're cruel and excessive. But not all of them are in the war camp. Mm-hmm. And they're great at surfing, apparently. So. Yep. And then we get totems. Or Aomakua. Which read a lot like this, just... I don't think there's any differences between this and when we talked about the Nunehi, besides... The only difference is that it's pointed out they tend to have more frequently like plants and minerals and natural phenomena as totems, not just animals. Which the Nunehi too, I believe, often have plants as totems. Yeah. So just in, in contrast with Garu, is the we get some bunks. We get the note that they do not usually possess modern abilities such as streetwise drive, computer, and science. At least it says do not usually, as yeah. opposed to cannot take. <laughs> it, if they're all living in that, if it's just talking about the ones living in that village, sure. But Yeah. And notes about how they gain glamour from nature. Which, yeah, yeah, I found this kind of neat. Yeah. But if they're going to have, like, because it depends on their court or camp, sorry, their camp. If you're feast, you gather it from natural phenomenon and war, gather it from hunting animals. Generally. Mm-hmm. Well, you can also get it from pure water, and then there's the harvesting versus raiding distinction, which is just basically can never like reverie versus ravaging. Ravaging, yeah. But it's the same method of gathering them. And then blessing, where they can actually do self. Oh, they can't self-inspire. This is where they have to get it from their totem. Yeah. It, it's totem inspiration. Only four times a year. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like Rapture, they can gain permanent glamour from it, so it's a potent form yeah. of... And then the totems with the separate rules for Garu for each totem. You know, all eight Garu in Hawaii. Maybe the Rokia can take it too? I don't know. And then the chronology, which, again, is very detailed. Yep. And that's it. Yeah. Apart from some curious ads at the back. Don't break the spine, Don't Puka. break the spine. I have, I have never broken the spine. Mm-hmm. I've never assembled the spine, unfortunately. I don't think anyone has. And then at the very back, so I have this little trading card that was inserted into the book that I've kept in there since I got it. And it is an advertisement for Arcadia the Wild Hunt. Nice. So to assure that your retailer has Arcadia the Wild Hunt, fill out this card and have him pre-order yours today. The hunt begins July 1996. You should go insure that, Puka. Yep, I'll put it in the show notes. I wonder if it's still valid. I wonder if I could still send this in and say, excuse me, 
No, I I think you should keep the card. I don't think I don't think you can yeah. mail that off to what Sweden now and expect them to have it on stock. No, no, no. It's it's for your retailer. It's yeah. you give your name and your phone number yeah. to your local retailer and tell them I would like you to order Arcadia the Wild Hunt, please. Mm-hmm. Just get in your time yes. machine and <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Oh, there's also an ad that yeah, that card must have been like right next to the ad for Vampire of the Dark Ages. I have it between the ad for the novel and the Don't Break the Spine ad. Mm. And I think okay. that's where it was. But okay. anyway. So yeah. And that's the book. So using this in your game, what are your thoughts? I would use it for a setting, definitely. If I were setting something mm-hmm. in Hawaii, I would I would use this as inspiration for the different locations that characters might go, etc. When it comes to the Minihune, it has inspired me to do more research into this on my own. Recently at a bookstore, I found this, this volume of traditions and practices and cultural elements that were collected in the 70s, I believe, by researchers from the University of Hawaii at Manoa working with indigenous community groups. And it is a very Mm -hmm. thorough, deep exploration of a lot of things like the Kapu system. So again, it's like Wikipedia in the sense that you get this initial jumping off point, but then you should take it upon yourself to go do your Mm -hmm. own research in a sensitive and responsible manner. And yeah, there's a lot of lush description you can use here, but take any of the assertions about the mythology or even the history to an extent with a grain of salt. Mm Mm-hmm. How about the mechanics and things like that? Or Mechanics, I think, overall are fine. The NPCs really are ones that some of them I certainly wouldn't use. Others I definitely yeah. would. I think some of the NPCs are really well fleshed out. With talking with various people, we ever come up with a better... I ever see a better way of doing Nunehi? I would definitely take that into account if I was doing Menahune, I think. But Yeah. Ultimately, I think one of the ways to look at them is to say from a Kithane perspective, from a the, from the point of yep. view of, you know, a white Concordian changeling who doesn't know any better, the Nunahi and the Minihune have a lot of similarities and therefore are just vaguely yep. the same kind of galleon. But then from their own perspective, obviously they're very different. Although it actually says in this book explicitly that they'd be using Fey 1 and Fey 2, or maybe just Fey 1. But yes. But yeah, no, it's a... Uh, yeah, I found it very similar to combination of the toy box and us doing rage of cross appalachia yeah 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 but uh do you think you could probably get by with if you were interested in this and you didn't have the book and you weren't a completist or something like that you could do you think you could get by with the c20 core book plus like wikipedia and stuff probably you wouldn't get the the npcs that are handy to have but overall yeah because c20 just takes this appendix and plops it in <laughs> essentially yep. to the galleon chapter so anyway Doing your uh, Menahune Rokea crossover, that could be fun. Could it? Mm. <laughs> All right. So that's that's our book dive. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, once again, you can find us, our website at changelingthepodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at Changeling the Podcast. You can find on Twitter at ChangelingCast. Uh, follow our Discord. You can find that on our website or probably linked in the show notes. Definitely on our website. By the time of this recording's release, we'll probably have a Patreon set up. Yes, we are launching a Patreon. There will be more details. You can probably read about it easier than by the time we release the details. But we are working on setting up a Patreon. Groovy. Groovy. All right, then.
Yeah. With that. Don't let uh, any geologists make you fall into the mists. Or into lava. Here come the outtakes. Welcome to Mage the... Oh my god. <laughs> I'll tell you a linguistic tidbit. This is interesting. Hawaiian is a language that the K sound and the T sound, the ka and ta, are sort of in variation with each other. Mm. So things like Waikiki, you might have pronounced as Waititi. Mm. Like the and the P and the B. I know those are yes. in all kinds yeah. of languages. So Yeah, but KT is very uncommon. Mm -hmm. So that variation. So they're both stops. Anyway, mm -hmm. linguistic side note. But yeah, so kapu and tabu are essentially the same. I mean, the actual systems differ from culture to culture, but the root concept, the word is, yeah. is cognate.